I'm Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. It happened again just this past weekend. And and I, I'm about to tell you this story, not because I want to make myself look good in any way, shape, or form. In fact, I, I think this might actually kind of make me look bad, but because I think a lot of us have dealt with this before, and it's important to talk about. We walked into mass on Sunday morning. 7 a.m. is typically when we go because my kids are going to wake up early regardless of the weekend or not. So we might as well just go early so that we can start our day with Jesus. The 7 a.m. mass at our parish, and we bounce back and forth between the parish where we're registered and a church that's a little bit closer, both where we feel quite comfortable and at home. We walk in. We are generally the youngest people in the room with the youngest children. And we're juggling our kids and their mass bags that are filled with Catholic things that will hopefully keep them focused, a chewable rosary, some some quiet toys. We go in resolved and committed to do our very best to pay attention, to focus on what is being said, to listen to the readings, to engage in the prayer, to try to keep our children as still as possible, which is sometimes a fighting and losing battle from the get-go. But we walked in this past Sunday, and, and I'm, I'm literally, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I'm recording this the day after this happened. We walked in this past Sunday, and we immediately realized that we had arrived, not only a couple of minutes late, but we'd arrived at church on Vocations Sunday. Now, Vocation Sunday in our diocese, maybe this is like yours as well, it rotates every different diocese, or excuse me, every different parish gets the vocations director for a weekend, and he comes and he gives a homily focused on how do we encourage vocations? How do we talk about the priesthood and religious life in an encouraging way? And so we sit down. I know this priest. I've known him for a while. We've spent some time together in Rome, in fact, when he was in seminary, and I was there for the pre-synod of young adults. So, so he's not a stranger. My kids have no idea who he is. In fact, Rose, my four-year-old, leaned over and asked me if it was another priest because they look a little similar. I guess if you have a beard and you're standing up in the sanctuary, then you're the same priest regardless of who you actually are. And he launches into his homily, and it was very good. It was a little long, I'm not going to lie. And I would tell him as much in person if I ever had the chance. But as he was talking, my mind started to drift. Not because it wasn't engaging, but because I've got a one-and-a-half-year-old, Claire, who's decided she wants to walk up and down the pew. I've got a four-and-a-half-year-old who every now and then wants to ask a question, and so I have to tell her, no, no, this isn't the time to talk. I've got a myriad list of things in my mind, stuff that has to be done, a to-do list that never seems to get shorter. I've got a husband sitting on the other side of me who we may or may not have been spatting just a few minutes before in the van about something silly and stupid. And so the both of us are a little tense, more tense than we should be. We walked into mass already bringing a lot. And as such, oftentimes when we step into the mass, when we hear the readings, when we listen to the homily, when we engage in the Eucharistic prayer, even when we walk up to receive communion, we're carrying so many things in our head and in our heart that it's incredibly easy to lose track of what we're actually doing, which is growing as close as we possibly can to the Lord in that moment, the most important form of worship. Well, I wanted to sit down with somebody to talk about that. And this week, over the couple of podcasts that we have, we're going to dig into how do we handle those distractions But even more importantly, how do we maybe allow those distractions, allow those moments of our minds starting to wander, those kids that we're trying to keep focused, how do we allow that to actually inform our worship? 
How do we walk into mass prepared? How do we allow those moments of distraction to form us? And then how do we allow ultimately the mass to shape us? So we're kicking off this week of conversations about the the particular distractions at times of the mass or the way we have to discern our participation in the mass by sitting down with Father Joshua Whitfield. Now, Father Josh is a, a unique figure in our church today. He is married with children, a former Episcopal priest who converted to Catholicism back in 2009 is now serving as the pastor of St. Rita Catholic Community in Dallas, Texas. He's an author, he is a speaker, father, and capital F, father, husband, amazing guy who serves in a really dynamic way and brings a lot of insight into both the beauty of the Mass as a convert and as a priest, how we can handle preparing for the Mass, some of the practical ways that we can do that, and really gives us some beautiful insight, I think, into even how the priest has to prepare. This is all part of our Ave Explorer series on the Mass. You can find everything we're creating over at AveMariaPress.com. You're not going to want to miss it. It's available to you there completely for free. If you click down in the show notes, you'll find all of the links that'll bring you to our other podcast, our Ave Explorers live conversations on Instagram. So many great things for you. So check it out over at AveMariaPress.com. But for now, we'd love it if you'd sit back and enjoy this conversation with Father Joshua Whitfield about how we can prepare for Mass. Well, Father Joshua Whitfield, welcome to Ave Explorers. It's good to be with you, Katie. So I've been a long fan of yours. We met very briefly at the UD Ministry Conference in the before times. I mean, I don't even remember what year that was. Pre-COVID, long time ago. But now here we are hanging out on Zoom. Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you are, and what you do. Well, I'm pastor of St. Rita Catholic Community in Dallas, and I've been there for a while in a number of forms because I used to be an Episcopal priest. And when I came into the Catholic Church, I was hired by the pastor of St. Rita at the time, who is now Bishop Mark Seitz of El Paso. (laughs) And so he brought me into the church. And it sounds like a joke, and it actually probably was a little bit, but I I was a Catholic for 30 hours when then Monsignor Mark Seitz hired me as the faith formation director at St. Rita, which is this huge parish here in North Dallas. I love it. And so I didn't know what I was doing. I never darkened the door of an RCI class, but I was brand new Catholic and here we are. And since that time, I've just accumulated work. And after Bishop Mark moved on to be auxiliary Bishop of Dallas and now the Bishop of El Paso, his successor became the Bishop of Lubbock. (laughs) And then Bishop Farrell on his way to Rome left me in charge. And so I've been doing that ever since. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm grateful. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's a beautiful, busy life. No one works harder in Christendom, I think, than parish priests, but it's truly a beautiful life and I'm, you know, happy to be here. So. Now you mentioned the, you know, the elephant in the room, you were an Episcopal priest, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're married with kids. Mm-hmm. Tell us that story. When you came from Episcopalianism into Catholicism, or is it Anglicanism? I can never, I never remember which term is correct. You use both terms. It's all mixed up together. I was baptized in the Disciples of Christ Church as a little kid, but then my dad uh, joined the Episcopal Church. And growing up, I, when I came to own my Christian faith, you know, personally and in, in almost, well, definitely in an evangelical sense, I fell in love with the beauty of Anglicanism and, and the Episcopal Church. You know, Anglicanism is sort of the global term, and the Episcopal Church is the American term, and and so I grew up in that very high, what we call Anglo-Catholic environment, which, which is very strong down here in this part of Texas. And I discerned a vocation 
to, to ministry in the Episcopal church context and being on the Anglo-Catholic high church side of it, you know, my theology, my, my senses, everything was Catholic in the sense. And, and so I saw myself as, as a being called to the priesthood, right? And so I trained for the ministry in England at a wonderful little college, a monastic college uh, called the College of the Resurrection. Came back to Texas and served because I do love Texas. It's my home. And uh <laughs> You know, served in ministry and, you know, the Episcopal Church is going through its all, all its own stuff. And, and so I escaped to the academic world and studied under Stanley Hauros, who is a great hero, mentor of mine at Duke. And, and then, but I've never been comfortable in the academic world either. I think the Lord built me to be a parish priest. And so going through all of that and to becoming a Catholic, a Roman Catholic, and my journey really, like so many in, in my situation, the path was trod by John Henry Newman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, spiritually and intellectually, we all follow him. And, you know, if you read the Apologia, you know, he, he discovered the church, right? He, he discovered the real living, breathing, reach out and touch it church. And it, and it just so happened to be the Roman Catholic Church, which was shocking to him, you know, mm-hmm. you know because as a... Oxford intellectual, he had a really good idea of the church, right? And he probably had a better idea of the church than anybody around him, Catholic or Protestant. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it was a conceptual sort of paper church. And history led him to the Roman Catholic church. And, and you know, he says in the Apologia, he says, you know, I fear that Rome will be found out correct, you know? And, and so he, you know, as he said, he who is immersed in history ceases to be a Protestant, right? Yeah. And so this discovering of this living, breathing church, these Christians who gathered around Jesus and, and you can follow them throughout history. It's this body of people who celebrate the sacraments, who live together, sin, forgive each other. It's history glorious and squalid, you know, but at the center of it is, is the communion of Peter and his successors and, and, you know, like it or lump it, that's the Roman Catholic church. And, and so once you see that, you know, Newman said, when he saw that in the summer vacation of 1839, he said it was like seeing a ghost. And he started, <laughs> it caused a crisis for him. He had to process this idea that, you know, these Italians, you know, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church is right. And so intellectually, you know, I went through that same process and, and a lot of us who, yeah. who walk this path do. And, and so I became a, a Catholic because that's the Catholic Church. And if you read... The Bible, if, if you sort of commit to being a Christian and you choose to conjugate all the verbs and, and follow the history, you're going you're to be a Roman Catholic, right? And yeah. that was my journey and game. And, and yeah. the second my wife and I became Catholic, we became Catholic together. Unutterable peace. I mean, the church could, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Catholic Twitter could be as crazy as it wants to be, <laughs> but goodness gracious, this is the church and I'm happy. Yeah. When, so y'all become Catholic. What's the process like? We have a lot of listeners who might know a handful of married priests. In my diocese, we have had two Mm -hmm. and then a widower priest. So a second career man, but you chose not the ordinariate, which is the, the right that was established by Benedict welcoming Episcopal priests into the church. What drew you to 
becoming a diocesan priest, bread and butter of the Diocese of Dallas. And what was that like? I mean, what was that like for people to get to know you guys? Yeah. What big differences did you start to immediately maybe notice other than the theological and the intellectual tradition? Mm-hmm. You know, when you said mass for the first time as a Roman Catholic priest versus an Episcopalian priest, other than like, you know, consubstantiation versus transubstantiation, what what was that like for you? To, to talk about that one point of, you know, the experience of celebrating the Eucharist, to speak about the personal spiritual experience of it. For me, it was an, an experience of real belonging, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is, you know, as an Episcopal priest, as an, as an Anglo-Catholic priest, I could celebrate the Eucharist in a remarkably beautiful way, chanting vestments, reverence that you're very hard-pressed sometimes to find in Roman Catholicism. Right, right. But I knew, especially toward the end of my time as an Episcopal priest, I knew so much that I felt it that whatever I believed I was doing, a lot of people didn't. And I knew that what I was doing was not in communion with the successor of Peter. Mm. Right? It's weird to say, but you know, I, I, I didn't just know it; I felt it. Yeah, and I felt that as a, as a pain, right? And so. When I became Catholic and I celebrated Mass at St. Rita, for example, I mean, I say this all due respect, I took a sort of very strange pleasure in wearing vestments that I would have previously considered very ugly, (laughs) (laughs) facing the people and, you know, singing hymns that I would have made fun of 10 years earlier, because, you know, in a weird way, it signaled to me that I am with these people whom I know to be church. Mm-hmm. And still to this day, I can't, I can get easily choked up by that, by that experience. Yeah. Because to celebrate the source and summit of your faith, knowing you belong to the Catholic church. Yeah. I've said this before. It sort of repeats itself at things like ordinations or, or at the chrismas or things like that, where like, dude, you could, you can feel being in communion with Peter. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I'm, I'm never getting away from that. Yeah. That can make sense. Yeah. And so that was, that was sort of like my internal experience celebrating mass. Right. Yeah. And I don't care if I was wearing a fiddleback facing East with more incense (laughs) or or, or if I'm at a coffee table, I don't, I'm in communion with Peter. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. like, Like I'm never getting away from that. Yeah. So, but the weird thing is my my first mass at St. Rita, one of the weird things to to answer the question, like, how is it, how do the people take to it? Yeah. After the first mass that I said at St. Rita, I gave a rose to my wife and she comes out foot of the altar and I hand her a rose and I give her a kiss. And I just didn't, it didn't register in me that that was going to (laughs) be a huge thing and that there were, there were going to be people there who were like, what did I just see? You know? (laughs) And, a scandal. Right, you know, but the beautiful thing about, this is true about St. Rita uniquely because it's a, I'm prejudiced. I think it's a magnificent yeah, community. It's a, it's a great community, yeah. Extremely good to me. But I think this is true again about, you know, the social world of Catholics. Yeah. And it's so amazing. Catholics love their priests so much, right? We, we gripe about clergy and rightly so, but viscerally, deeply, Catholics love their priests so much almost too much sometimes because I think they get spoiled, but they love them so much. It's just, you don't see that. You don't see that in, 
in other parts of yeah. the Christian world. And, and so that intense love for clergy, when it came to concern me, again, it, it just sort of widened a little bit. Yeah. So that their love for me has also become a love for my family. Yeah. Which is not an idolization, not anything like that, but my, my wife's ministry provides me a, a means of escape from the chaos of parish life. Yeah. That's how she, yeah. and so, you know, she's not in it, but the community just loves and supports us in, in a way that you just didn't experience as an episode. Yeah. Right. And so there's so many beautiful things about Roman Catholic life that, you know, we ought not to take for granted. Yeah. Yeah. You're the second convert that I've interviewed for this series. And it's, you know, a, a born and bred Catholic who has never been anything else save for like a quick, you know, high school rebellion. Yeah. It's it's always so beautiful to hear converts talk about what they discover that sometimes like, you know, cradle Catholics is like, oh yeah, like we take it for granted. We just, oh yeah, that's just kind of what we, yeah, that's true. But then sometimes we don't, like you're, you're speaking about this, this feeling of I, I belong, like we're all doing the same thing. Sure, that person over there might have cut me off in the parking lot or that person over there drives me up a wall, but we're all coming to this table together, imperfect and questioning. And yet we believe that that is true. A few weeks ago, we were at a former student of mine's wedding. And after they took their vows, and so the the bride is former student of mine. Her oldest brother is a priest and she's got seven other brothers. There's a a bunch of kids in this family. (laughs) So it was just about as Catholic as you can get. So after they take their vows, they kneel down and the community gathered 200 people in this church. We start singing a litany of saints, yeah. which I'd never seen done at a wedding before, but it made sense that Father Trey would make this a reality because, you know, he's yeah, awesome. yeah. he's going to Catholic it up. And there was just this, it was the first time in a long time where I felt a part of a community in a, in a whole different way. And the, the former coworker of mine was sitting behind me who was not Catholic. And she leaned forward after we were done and they began preparing the altar for the, the liturgy of the Eucharist. And she leaned forward and she was like, are all Catholic weddings like this? And I looked at her and I was like, they should be. Yeah, right. But like she could feel it. Like she, not Catholic, has taught in a Catholic school and has been to mass once a week at a Catholic school. She never even felt it there. But sometimes like when it's on, it's on. And when it's, it's hitting, on. it's hitting. Yeah. And it feels like as you came into the church, it sounds like you started to realize like, oh my gosh, like this is its next level for lack of a better way to put it. I feel like sometimes though, and this is why I want to pivot into the genius book that you wrote, The Crisis of Bad Preaching, you know what it should be. And, and you you saw what it it what it was that drew you to wanting to become Catholic. Mm-hmm. And even the the most faithful of Catholics who go every single Sunday, like we we understand why we're there. We're the ones who even just come only on Christmas and Easter. But then sometimes, like very practically, we walk into mass and it it doesn't hit. Mm-hmm. Or like father's just, he's just way off target. And you're like, what did, did you just watch one too many, I don't know, documentaries on this uh, random topic. And so now you're just like telling us your train of thought and it doesn't connect at all to the gospel or I'm juggling my kids and I'm like only half paying attention. And I, I hear one sentence out of context that just ticks me off for the rest of the month right. or the music is bad. Or I mean, there's all sorts of myriad different things. We have a, a conversation with the guest talking about distractions in mass, but you wrote a book that kind of addresses this, right? Like the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist, there's this lovely little in-between part where we get a homily that's supposed to kind of tie these two moments together. Talk to us about first why you wanted to write that book yeah, and maybe some of the points that you brought up and then we'll dig into how you and I can really prepare for this. So, you know, I did not become a Catholic because of preaching. Let's, <laughs> let's, put, let's just be honest about that. I don't think anybody did. Yeah, yeah. right. And so, in fact, you know, as, as an Anglican, as an Episcopalian, 
we used to say in seminary, we used to joke about it, right? That, that if, if you ever were to suffer hyper Roman fever, right? As we call it, if you're ever to suffer, suffer Roman fever and you know, think you needed to swim the Tiber, the best remedy for that was to actually go to a Catholic mass, right? <laughs> uh, and I remember going to a, a mass, a Catholic mass once, one Sunday in England and the opening hymn was, you know, the mass is ended, go in peace. And it was just, it was, and the poor old priest, it was just abysmal. And so you're right, you know, sometimes it doesn't hit. And particularly during the homily, sometimes it doesn't hit. And, and so, you know, and I, I grew up in a, in a Protestant tradition. I, my dad is, is to this day, a Protestant minister and a very good orator and preacher. And I, and I, I was just very blessed to be around a succession of very good preachers and I learned from them. And so for those who, for some reason, are estranged from that experience of belonging that we just talked about, whether they're seekers to use that term or, or people for whatever reason on the margins or sometimes, you know, circumstances in life, you know, puts you really at a crossroads. You know, the, the homily is is that moment in which a person can be touched or nudged in the right way and the wrong way. And mm-hmm. so and I say that to say, and I say this with all due respect to my brothers, sometimes I feel that the homily is just a profoundly missed opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. And so if I'm going to stand up in front of people and preach, whether it's three minutes or 20 minutes, I feel obligated to have prepared. Yeah, And I think we should just be honest and say, personally, a lot of times the preacher has not given effort to prepare as, as he should. And then institutionally, I, I think we've not done enough to prepare our seminarians for preaching. Mm. And, you know, and that, that takes money and organization and all that, but it's important, right? Because <laughs> I, I still think it's the case that too often the homily is a whiff and mm. it doesn't have to be. And mm-hmm. as a parish priest, I don't think it's rocket science. You, you need good worship, good liturgy. Mm-hmm. Don't go crazy. Just do what the missile says. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> good preaching, good community. Mm-hmm. Do that, people will come to Jesus Christ. And so really, if we focused on, on good preaching, I really think that would cover for even bad liturgy and bad music. Because yeah. If, yeah. if you think about it, you know, God uses the human voice for truth, right? God uses the human voice to this day, right, to communicate the gospel. Mm-hmm. And there, there's, there's not a screen, not a documentary. There's nothing that will replace the medium mm-hmm. of the human voice, the medium of the speaker, the preacher, the mother sharing the faith in her home genuinely, right? And that, that, that's not changed since Aristotle, right? And, and yeah. we just need to yeah. cover that truth and be serious about it and we priests need to get over ourselves and humble ourselves and, and get better. Yeah. yeah. My, myself included. I wrote a book on it, but that <laughs> doesn't mean I'm the perfect preacher. I hope you are enjoying this conversation with Father Joshua Whitfield. You know, he is one of our Ave Maria Press authors. He wrote a book that we really think you would absolutely love called The Crisis of Bad Preaching, in which Father Josh, again, a convert to Catholicism, who has a deep 
love and a long-standing history of understanding preaching, both from his family and from his education and from, of course, then his training to become a Catholic priest, he gives us a lot of insight into, one, how preaching can be better. So this is a, a manual of sorts for the priest and for the preacher, but two, how you and I can maybe even help that preaching get better. It's a great book. There's a link down to it in the show notes. We think you'd really love to add it to your cart, give it to your favorite priest who maybe needs a little bit of homily help or the one who's already doing really good things with his preaching, but you too would also enjoy it. So find the link down in our show notes. All right, back to the show. I love that you said those three, you need a good liturgy, you need good preaching, and then you need good community. Mm -hmm. When I walk into mass on Sunday, sometimes I feel like there's this attitude among the people in the pew that I'm watching mass. Like all these people are doing, the musicians are performing for me. The lectors are reading for me. Father is supposed to be preaching for me. And I walk in with my measly envelope that a kid's going to toss into a basket and mm -hmm. hopefully enough Cheerios to keep the two kids occupied for the next 60 minutes. And sometimes a bad attitude because like there was a fight on the way to church or we couldn't find the right pair of shoes or, and I'm just worried about the meal plan for the coming week or a thousand different things. So like, yes, I need father to prepare, mm -hmm. but I also need to prepare. And so I, you wrote a lovely chapter on this, that it's not just a matter of making sure that you, you hit, but I have to also step in there ready to listen. So what are some, you know, we've, we've gotten very practical in a lot of different ways in this podcast about how mass can be the most fruitful for everyone involved. Mm -hmm. What do I need to do to listen to the homily? You know, those who have ears ought to hear, well, okay, well, how do I have the ears Right. to hear. Is it a matter of reading the readings before I show up? Is it a matter of asking father for a copy of it, listening to podcasts? What What do I need to do? Yeah, that's a great, I mean, I think anything genuine in life requires buying into it, leaning into it, putting, putting our own energy into it. Right. And so the ideal of active participation in the church is, is a beautiful, powerful concept when you get it right. And Active participation, the way the church means it, the way, as far as I can tell, you know, if you read uh, Ratzinger and, and when we first started talking about active participation, we were talking about a deep from top to bottom, genuine engagement with the work of the liturgy itself, right? With the words, it was first an interior spiritual engagement. Then it was signing up to be a lector or how many times you say amen. Active participation is spiritual work, right? And that's different than so many experiences which are common in modern life, right? Mm -hmm. Turn on Disney Plus and you're ready for that Marvel intro to hit because it kind of gives you a, a feel. Yeah. I, I, you know, like I love Marvel stuff. You, you see what I'm saying? Uh, you know, we have a consumerist spectator. I mean, th those are our habits, right? Mm -hmm. And so we've got to be thoughtful and realize that that mentality is is going to short circuit your experience in the mass. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so really understanding what active participation means first is in as interior spiritual work and then trying to flesh out, okay, practically what does that mean? Right. In my book on crisis by preaching at the very end is that epilogue, the way of the listener, right? Cause I spent all this time talking about what preachers can do to be better preachers. And at the very end, I talk about the way of the listener. Actually I wrote the way of the listener first but it's, oh, wow. it was written out of the whole book and I wrote it very quickly, you know, because I was kind of fired up. You know? And so I've always thought to myself, okay, so as a mass goer, priest or lay person, where am I trying to go? 
what am I praying, hoping will happen, right? And so I always think of Luke 24, you know, the road to Emmaus, right? Yeah. Uh, first things first, you got two guys walking on the road. And so, you know, community, right? Not one dude, it's two, right? Mm-hmm. And Jesus, Jesus shows up. They don't go to Jesus. Jesus goes to him, mm-hmm. to them, right? And then they talk about scripture. And so, you know, I mean, it, it clearly Luke 24 is the liturgy of the word, the liturgy of the Eucharist, right? But there's that moment in the middle of it where Jesus has been talking to them and sets their hearts on fire. And I think it's like verse 28 or something, I don't know. But they're about to turn into the end to the Pope, you know. And for me, it's one of the most beautiful prayers in the whole New Testament. The guy turns and says to Jesus, doesn't even know he's Jesus yet. He turns and says to him, and he just says, stay with us. Mm-hmm. Stay with us, right? That's the prayer. That should, that's what should, whatever words you use, that should be the experience mm-hmm. right before the priest says, lift up your hearts. See what I'm saying? And so, you know, the liturgy of the word, if you read the Roman Missal, the rubric right before the liturgy of the word, it just says, sit and listen. Mm-hmm. Right? That's it. Yep. <laughs> it very simple. And so the idea is to, is to go from the liturgy of the word through the homily to take our hearts, set them on fire so that they can pray beautifully in some form or fashion, stay with us, which is mm-hmm. where we need to be right before the epiclesis, you know? Mm-hmm. And so how do you do that? That's what the way of the listener is about, you know, and it's practical. If you're going to go to mass on Sunday, read what the scripture says. Mm-hmm. Right, what, so before what are, you get there. Before you get yeah. there. Totally. And it's kind of like, you know, whenever I get to go to a concert, I went to see Lyle Lovett the other day, right? So awesome. Lyle Lovett. <laughs> Hayes Carl, who you probably don't know who he is, but great. You know, just, man, so what am I doing? I'm listening to Lyle Lovett all day, right? Yeah. If I get had yourself a, ready. If I had a boat, man, I need to be there. And so that same sort, I mean, simple, you know, yeah. read the scripture, be familiar with the scripture. Again, from a Protestant, former Protestant standpoint, Catholic worship across the board is the most biblical thing you can ever do, right? Mm-hmm. Second, almost, almost syllables by syllable allusions to yeah. stories of scripture. And the more you're immersed in scripture, the more the liturgy is going to come alive for you. And you can't do it all at once, you know, because that's just the way we are. But take five, 10 minutes, read the scripture so that when you come in, I've heard this before, right? You know, I'm ready to sing if I had a boat, right? Because it, mm-hmm. and so that, you know, symbols that. Then it becomes sort of spiritual, the, the way the listener I talk about, basically it, it measures up to, you know, being spiritually empathetic, spiritually alert to what's going on, right? Step number two is like pray for your preachers, Right. And this is one thing I've learned. I'm prejudiced because I am a, a parish priest, but very few people work harder in Christendom than Roman Catholic parish priests, right? Mm-hmm. I was an Episcopal priest for a while, and you know that was like a part-time job. With all mm-hmm. with all due respect, it's just they're so yeah. unbelievably busy that you know I feel for you. And so praying for the preacher, especially if you know he might be called upon to say something difficult, yeah, uh, something he's not comfortable with. I mean, and also, you know, each preacher is dealing with his stuff, you know, and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. sometimes you preach something and, and you immediately feel the, you know, the question of your own hypocrisy, you know, but you still have to preach the truth because it's bigger than you, you know? And so praying for that guy is step number one. Step number three is understanding we're right off the bat. Holy Spirit is there, right? So we're about to celebrate the ascension of Jesus and then shortly thereafter, Pentecost, 
And I, as I've always liked to point out, there is no feast of the ascension of the Holy Spirit. Because right? mm. the Holy Spirit is with us, right? And so the Holy Spirit's in, in your church. The Holy Spirit's mm-hmm. in, well, he's there, you know? And so if, if you think he's not there, that's a you problem, right? So mm. even in the lips mouth of a bad preacher, I, I think the, the missed opportunity there is to, is to okay, Father's struggling, he, or, you know, this is the guy who's not very good or whatever. And the mistake is to flip the switch off, right? As mm-hmm. you said, halftime, right? Mm-hmm. Totally get it. It happens, happens to me. And so that just happens. Yeah. It's always a mistake. Mm-hmm. And so if the Holy Spirit's there and it's a, you know, you know, he's there, then what's up? You need to struggle, right? Yeah. Struggle to listen. You know, I mean, we've got a lot of young families in the parish and it, and so, you know, the nine o'clock mass, 10 and 45, sometimes it can just, it's all over the place, right? You're not the only one preaching. That's for sure. <laughs> so, what's funny is I'm up there and out of, you know, the 50 or 60 chirping babies, out of all of those, I can I can pick mine out, right? You yeah, know, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, you like it. See, you're tuned in your own frequency. And also, just as a side note, that never bothers me. Phones. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, that's another. We'll appreciate this. We had a school mass once, and father's cell phone went off in his pocket in the middle of his homily, and he was incredibly apologetic. Yeah, he was right. an older guy. He was like, "I'm not exactly sure how to turn this off. It's an alarm. It's not. It's nothing's ringing. He had no idea. It was." An altar server comes up and very sheepishly stops it, makes sure it's on mute. But yeah, I mean, human distractions come in with us. Yeah, right. It's almost like if there was a place where I can I can check my phone at the door, where I can check my frustrations and my distractions and my worries. But there's a way too to offer. You said it right. Like there's a struggle. Like I'm I'm I bring those to the altar. I bring oh. those forward and lay them down. And it's like, look, Father's struggling to be heard. I'm wrestling this kid. I'm worried about this family drama, whatever. We're all bringing it together to try to let that Holy Spirit move. It's the same thing with in the spiritual life. Sometimes we have trouble praying, right? Mm -hmm. It's a season of dryness or whatever. The worst thing you can do is stop praying, right? Yeah. It's your struggle to pray, which is your prayer. Which is part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Part of the game. And you might get a phrase or a word or even the Holy Spirit can sometimes be so creative as to make you hear something he did not actually say mm-hmm. is better than what he actually said. And, and <laughs> you, you, know, you know, I mean, the, yeah. Holy, the Holy Spirit works, right? Can The Holy Spirit makes lemonade out of lemons, man. And so expecting that that's going to happen, right? Yeah. A good friend of mine who's a young priest, I mean, not even ordained. By the time this comes out, I think he might've hit his one year anniversary, but I mean, a baby priest. And I asked, oh, he came over for coffee. He's my daughter's godfather. And how are things going? And he said, you know, I didn't expect to enjoy preaching as much as I do. And I was like, right. I looked at him, I was like, you love to talk. And he's like, it's not the same. Yeah. Talking is not preaching. Like preaching is knowing your people, knowing what they're dealing with, knowing what you've heard in the confessional mm-hmm. and being able to serve. And he's young. I mean, he's under 30. Like th- he's a young guy in a community of older folks. And yet it's his favorite thing about the priesthood so far is being able to preach to these people. And I was, I was so shocked because that was not, not what I was expecting him to say. You know, I thought I was going to get a laundry list of complaints or frustrations or struggles. And it was, he loved the preaching component. And so I'm sitting there and kind of a pause. And I went, so what's your least favorite part? Kind of a pause. And he was like, sometimes the preaching. (laughs) And it was, it was just like, sometimes I don't know what I'm supposed to say. Or I look out at a crowd of people who are not really, you can, I mean, as I'm a speaker, like it's not the same, but like you Mm -hmm. can tell when an audience and with a crowd is not with you. And I can only imagine the burden. So I think it's, for us in the pews, 
to not along, like you said, to cup our ears or even to just like lean forward slightly or like if I'm walking with the toddler in the back, at least I stay in the church and like try to listen and not just immediately run to the flower beds outside where I know she'll just pick up a bunch of dirt, but like we're all invested in this together. Mm-hmm. No, totally. I'm encouraged by his words, you know, about enjoying it because, it, you know, Augustine talked about hilaritas as, as essential to preaching, right? And, yeah. But it is, you know, as, as you know, as a speaker, you know, it's, a, it's an ethos pathos thing and it's like, it's akin, it's attached to that sense of belonging that I, we talked about at the very beginning. You know, when a preacher is in communion with his people, and there's that dialogue around the word of God, that is, I feel better in that space than mm-hmm. in almost any other place in ministry, right? Because yeah, yeah. Augustine talked, like if you read some of Augustine's sermons, I mean, there's tons of them, right? So every once in a while, you'll, you'll hear him talk about, let's listen together to God, mm-hmm. right? And he always gets a sense of, he'll on occasion give, give you the sense that he feels that he's with his people Mm-hmm. in dialogue with the Lord. And yeah. when all that's clicking and it's awesome, mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah. tough, you know, sometimes in funerals or something, I love, I love preaching funerals and funerals when it's, when heaven really is just the natural next step because mm-hmm. of the way you've lived your life and we're all brothers and sisters singing hallelujah on the shore, so to speak, man, that's so awesome. Mm-hmm. Right? When people who really are detached from the meaning Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the faith can give uh, you certainly do your best and you, you minister to those people and help them mm-hmm. but for a preacher that's um that's when preaching becomes harder and heavier mm-hmm. and you sometimes wonder did i connect you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so yeah totally i mean preaching i love it but it, it can you know it, yeah it's it's like anything you know yeah, it's a give and a take for sure. Father, we we could keep going, but uh, I've got to I've got to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests this season. So, beside the homily, because we've spent a lot of time on that, mm-hmm. what is your favorite part of the mass? Whether you're saying the mass, whether you're attending the mass, which I don't know how that works. Do you often go to mass not as the celebrant with young children? I don't know. I mean, I don't know what sometimes your setup I, might sometimes be. Sometimes I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it totally depends on. You know, with five kids and schedule yeah. and stuff. You know how it is. I mean, right, right, right. Yeah. But your favorite part? What's your favorite part? My favorite part, I think, you know, really for me, it's the beginning. So from the penitential act through the Kyrie, through the Gloria, right? Mm. I really try and focus the whole time, no doubt. But for me, man, I really sort of inhabit the meaning of saying Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people who call a lot of other things Lord, but we call Christ Lord. Yeah. And from Christ comes the mercy, which even allows me to be there. Mm-hmm. And then just the profound grace of the penitential act being immediately followed by angelic beauty. Lord yeah. on the highest. Right. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're praising God, the father, praising Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. All it's, mm-hmm. it's just, uh, it's just pure theology, you know, mm-hmm. and I can just sit there. So I've got a really good choir and <laughs> I can just sit there and just pray it. Yeah. And then, then I can sit down and listen to the word of the Lord. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, I mean, that that's so that totally that's my favorite part. Yeah. I mean, it's the entrance into the throne room. Aside yeah. from Jesus being present, obviously. But, right, uh, right, right. And that's that's the quality. Besides yeah. receiving the Eucharist, yeah, right, right. these other little and that's so interesting. Nobody's answer has been the same. It's yeah. my favorite. I think by the time we get to the end of the series, everybody will have actually said a different part of the, the first that's one good. to say the start. Awesome. Which is just the Holy Spirit's got his hand in the way all of this goes. Even the priests, they haven't all said the same stuff. So that's pretty that's nice. Right. To, we've had a lot of priests this season. Father, where can we follow you? And remind us again, the title of your book, so folks can grab a copy. The book is uh, The Crisis of Bad Preaching, Redeeming the Heart and the Way of the Preacher, I think is the subtitle. And for better or worse, I'm on Twitter, you know, so <laughs> Father <laughs> okay, FR Josh Texas TX, right? So I've got a website, Joshua, Father Joshua Whitfield.com, I think so. We'll link it all in the show notes. Just Thanks do, for taking just the time. Google it. You're good. So yeah, you're I mean, you come up, you come up real quick. Yeah. So next time I'm you know, I went to St. Rita's when I was in college. I taught oh, you uh, CCD oh, well. at St. Rita's. Oh, thank yeah. you very much. Thank for, uh, I mean, it was over a decade ago, but I taught a I taught a little Sunday class. It was yeah. uh, it was a good entrance into reminding me why I did not ever want to teach CCD and then right. became uh, a teacher well, for a while. You, you are a light. Miss. Thanks, Father. I appreciate it. And that. so thank you for all you do. And oh, yeah. next time well, you're in Dallas, you. come to us. We'll come hang out. I fly through Dallas all the time. So yeah. thank you so much for taking the time, Father. Yes, ma'am. One of the things I loved about this conversation with Father Josh, what I've loved really about all of our guests this season, is how they're they're putting their personal perspective on the Mass, which is something that is is deeply, deeply personal, right? The way I experience Mass, the way you experience Mass, the way Father Josh experienced Mass, it's different for every single one of us, and yet there's great universality in that difference and that diversity. There's great insight that can be found from my particular experience, from your particular experience, from Father Josh's particular experience. And I think he really brings a, a unique perspective as a convert, as a husband, as a father, as a priest, as a pastor, as somebody who has studied the art of preaching and has written about the art of preaching, who is helping us to understand the great beauty of investing more intentionally in the Mass and preparing for it when we're at home. You know, I, I talked at the beginning of this, how I walked into Mass on Sunday a bit distracted, my head in a thousand different places, but I, I did remember that this podcast was coming up this week and that I, I needed to record the intro and the outro for it soon. And, and so I, I went back and, and listened to some of what Father Josh said and realized that when we had this conversation a couple of weeks ago and we recorded it, and then now as I was listening to it after a Sunday Mass, that some of the insights that he gave about how to prepare, even just something simple like reading the readings ahead of time, or maybe after Mass is done, talking about it on the way to pick up donuts with your family, right? To, to recognize that the Mass has ended, go forth in peace, is a command to allow what's happened in that 60 to 75 minutes to truly form and shape us. But I can't expect that 60 to 75 minutes to form and shape me if I'm not preparing for it in some intentional way. And so as we continue to dive into the beauty of the Mass, the gift of the Mass, the reason the Mass is so significantly important in the life of our church and in our faith, I, I would offer that that tiny little bit of practical encouragement that he offered to us as well to, to reiterate it, that even just tiny small steps of prepping, of opening our minds and hearts a little bit ahead of time and then talking about it after the fact can allow the Mass to be an experience far beyond an hour on Sunday or 30 minutes in the middle of the week. But to recognize that it is this truly transformational experience that can change everything. You can find all the great stuff that we're creating for Ave Explores the Mass over at our website, AveMariaPress.com. It's completely for free. The link is down in our show notes, as well as a link to Father Josh's book. You're definitely going to want to grab it. 
It's an excellent gift. It's great for you to read as well. Everything over at our website, AveMariaPress.com. Follow us on Instagram at AveMariaPress. We've got another excellent podcast coming later on this week to continue this conversation about distractions and preparing for the Mass. This one with a lay woman, a theologian who's worked in parish and diocesan ministry, some excellent insight that she's going to offer to us. And by the way, our Ave Explorer series is going to kind of conclude in a few weeks with a live Q&A with Father Blake Britton. So down on our Ave Maria Press website over there, and you can click that link down in the show notes, there is a form that you can fill out to submit your questions. And Father Blake might answer those questions live. He will answer quite a few of them live, but maybe he'll answer yours on our Instagram live in a few weeks. So you're definitely not going to want to miss that. Click on over to our website, AveMariaPress.com. You'll find everything there, including the form for those questions. We'd love it if you'd send us your thoughts, send us your questions so we can answer them as a part of our series. We'll be back later this week with Shannon Schmidt to talk more about the Mass and our distractions and how to focus. We're so grateful that you listened today, and we'll see you soon. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.